The OED, Oxford English Dictionary, defines a subculture as, quote, a cultural group within a larger culture, often having beliefs or interests at variance with those of the larger culture, unquote. In short, it's a culture whose ideas and values often break away from those of society at large. One famous example would be the punk rock scene in Britain in the 1970s, at which time many young people donned shocking costumes and hairstyles, which broke away from the rigid conservatism that otherwise dominated the mainstream society of the day. Bands like the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks railed against the established order by speaking directly to teenage angst and encouraging nonconformity. As such, this subgenre of rock music has become synonymous with rebellion and revolt, but the culture that was born of and grew around it was by no means the first of its kind. Indeed, in a Europe plagued by the ills and extremes of fascism just before and during World War II, countless youth subcultures emerged throughout the continent, in direct opposition to the Nazi regime that threatened to conquer and dominate its various countries. One such group was born in France, and, alongside the adult men and women who ran the underground resistance, these young people protested the collaborationist regime regime of the time to assert their individuality. I'm speaking, of course, about the Zazus, a jazz-crazy, loudly-dressed, umbrella-carrying subset of French youths who did what they did as a proverbial middle finger to their Nazi occupiers. But what exactly did they do? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and today we'll be taking a look at this weird yet wonderful World War II French subculture right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. As with most events set in more recent French history, our story begins in Paris. The French capital famously fell on June 14, 1940, one month after the Wehrmacht crossed into the country from the German border. Two weeks later, Adolf Hitler himself stood on the steps of the Trocadero in the city's 16th arrondissement and infamously beheld the Eiffel Tower on the opposite bank of the Seine. It was a photograph that sent shockwaves throughout the world and proved once and for all the threat that the Nazis posed to the rest of Europe. No sooner had the invaders set up shop was a French collaborationist government established in the resort town of Vichy, in the central part of the country. Known officially as the État français, or French state, it was soon, and has since become, known as the Vichy Régime, after its governmental headquarters in that selfsame town. Led by Marshal Philippe Pétain, it soon cracked down on French freedoms and liberties in favor of restrictive Nazi policies. Despite this, however, French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre later eerily recalled in an essay on occupied France how, quote, they, the Nazis, were always cordial, even friendly to the people they passed on the streets, unquote. Despite these unsettlingly chipper conditions, it wasn't long before a resistance started to form. But while many belligerent artists, intellectuals, and average Joes took their activities underground, the youth of France paraded their descent on the streets. By 1940, jazz was the most popular music in France, and its capital was, perhaps not surprisingly, firmly situated in Paris. The genre had been introduced via American soldiers, specifically those units comprised of African Americans, during and immediately after the Great War, World War I. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, several musicians, black and white alike, hailing from both the French countryside as well as the United States, had arrived in the city to feed this ever-growing craze. Black American entertainers such as Josephine Baker and Sidney Bechet unable to obtain work in their homeland due to segregation, took Paris by storm, where they became beloved figures who are still celebrated to this day. French icons like Django Reinhardt and Stéphane Grappelli also gained fame at this time, adding a distinctly European flavor to the genre. With this exposure came a vibrant youth culture situated around the cafes, nightclubs, and dance halls of the city's cultural and intellectual quarters. It was these cultures that would ultimately blossom into those of the Zazus under the Vichy regime. While this unique subculture would ultimately be found in cities throughout France, 
Once again, perhaps not surprisingly, its largest concentration was based in and around Paris and her environs, particularly along the Champs-Élysées, as well as what the Zazus themselves referred to as the Boulmiche, the Boulevard Saint-Michel near the Sorbonne. Their favorite haunts and gathering places were the Pam Pam Café, a stone's throw from the Arc de Triomphe, as well as in clubs such as the Copulade or the Dupont Latin, where all-night dance competitions were held. Oftentimes, they'd publicly challenge the occupying troops to said competitions with the intent of mopping the floor with them, if you will, with their dancing abilities. The music of choice was swing, which had been all the rage prior to the German occupation. But it wasn't enough to publicly mock the fascists who had forcibly moved into the Zazus's beloved homeland. These rebellious youths were easily identifiable among the populace, for the loud, garish clothing they'd done in direct defiance of the rigid and restrictive rationing laws on fabrics during the war. For example, the young men would wear comically large suit jackets, often brightly colored, equipped with many pockets. The pants were equally vivid in coloration, though they were comparatively slim, as were the ties they wore, which were usually made of wool or cotton, both of which were heavily rationed at the time. Thick-soled shoes of leather or suede were the preferred footwear of the male Zazus, and were often complemented by brightly colored socks. Accessories such as umbrellas or canes, noted as being of the style anglais, or English style, were fashion trends adopted from their British neighbors across the channel. Their hair was done up or slicked back with either pomade or grease, in what the writer Simone de Beauvoir referred to as being à la mode d'Oxford, Oxford style, a reference to the sharp-dressed students of the same-named university. One fascist publication remarked with apparent scorn that, quote, Here is the specimen of the ultra swing 1941. Hair hanging down to the neck, teased up into an untidy cliff. Little mustache a la Clark Gable, shoes with two thick soles, syncopated walk, unquote. Their female counterparts, on the other hand, opted to wear their hair in curls, ringlets, or braids, each of which were shoulder length. Blonde was the preferred color, with many brunettes or redheads bleaching their hair to obtain this most desired look. Bright shades of lipstick, namely red or pink, were also employed to draw attention to the otherwise sickly, dull appearance of average French women under the rationing rules and restrictive laws in general under the collaborationist government. The Zazu women's jackets were of equally loud hues and were characterized by their wide, almost trapezoidal shoulders, juxtaposed with pleated short skirts. They also wore thick-soled shoes, the bottom of which were often made of wood like traditional Dutch clogs, and striped or netted stockings. Zazus of both sexes often opted to wear sunglasses as well, a decidedly newer and still shocking accessory that was confined solely to iconoclasts and other counterculturalists of the day. Their appearance was shocking enough, but their tastes and interests positively mortified the occupying forces. Everything that had been deemed degenerate, quote-unquote, by both the Vichy regime and the Nazis was preferred by the Zazus. For instance, it might surprise you to learn that they were the first subculture to incorporate vegetarianism in Europe. Aside from the cafes and clubs they loved, they also hung around the city's vegetarian restaurants, where their preferred dish was a sort of salad made of grated carrots. Various fruit juices were also favored, as well as beer mixed with grenadine syrup. As for social activities, we've already mentioned the intense dance competitions, but decadent partying was also a major part of the culture. All-night house parties, characterized by the syncopated strains of jazz music, were held out in the open in direct defiance of what the Nazis had deemed entate de musique, degenerate music. In fact, it's from this genre that the subculture likely got its name, from a scat catchphrase created by African-American musician Cab Calloway that went something along the lines of Zazuzaze. Jazz was seen by the fascists as being created and promoted by blacks and Jews, and in protest of the discrimination of both these peoples in France under the Nazi regime, the Zazus soon employed yellow star patches similar to those forcibly worn by French Jews, with labels that ranged from Goy, the Yiddish word for Gentile, Zazu, and Swing. 
With such threatening behaviors and characteristics as these, it wasn't long before the Vichy regime began targeting the Zazus and labeling them as a, quote, threat to the youth of France, unquote. Ever since the Paris Commune of 1871, the French government had been concerned, almost on a scale bordering on obsession, with the demoralization of the country's youth. After all, several young people had been involved in that conflict, and those on top felt it their duty to steer French youth in the proverbial right direction. By 1940, however, following the German occupation, this obsession reached a fever pitch, with the Zazus proving to be the thorn in its side. Over the ensuing three years, several governmental articles were published antagonizing them as, quote, work-shy, egotistical, Judeo-Gallic shirkers, unquote. Those youth organizations that had been organized by the Vichy regime called for the scalping of the Zazus, and they'd often attack them in the streets, armed with shears and hair clippers, in order to cut their hair so as to appear, quote-unquote, normal. But these attacks were only the beginning. By 1943, the collaborationist government started rounding up the Zazus and shipping them off to Nazi-funded work and labor camps in the French countryside, in the hopes of reforming and rehabilitating them. Some were even sent to concentration camps throughout Europe, where they were forced to perform manual labor alongside Jewish, Romani, homosexual, communist, and Jehovah's Witness prisoners, among others. Some died under such harsh conditions, while others were only liberated when the Allies arrived at the war's end. As conditions became increasingly more dangerous for them, what was left of the Zazus who hadn't been sent away went underground, where they continued listening to their beloved jazz music away from the prying eyes and ears of the fascist political system. Some even joined the resistance, though many were seen, rather unjustly, as having a cavalier attitude towards the war in general. While by no means the first subculture, the Zazus were one of the most influential, not just in their native France, but also abroad. Boris Vian, a French novelist and witness to the Nazi occupation, wrote a book in 1947 that reflected this most vibrant youth subculture. Known in English as Vercoquin and the Plankton, its narrative takes a comprehensive look at the brave young men and women who openly defied both the Vichy government and Nazi regime, while never losing sight of their individuality. As previously stated, there were several other youth subcultures that emerged in Europe to openly defy Nazi rule, some of which were directly inspired by the corrupting youth of France. The individual tastes of France's young people may have changed since World War II, but I'd say that the overall sentiment remains the same. To rebel against injustice, to stand up for what's right, and above all, always being true to oneself. Merci beaucoup for listening, mes amis. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The Zazus are something to which I've only recently been exposed, but the minute I heard their incredible story, I knew I had to do a segment about it. If you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it, you might want to consider sharing it with friends and family. If you like learning about history, please consider supporting this podcast. All you have to do is go to this website, podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company, all one word, and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Join me again next week for another enthralling episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.